Well, it is good to be with you this morning. I'm pretty fired up. Uh, we had a lady give her life to Christ this morning in our first service, and this was her first Sunday with us. And so, um, pretty amazing. We've got a family in our church that had been ministering to her children, and um, her children have been coming here for months, and uh, don't really know why she showed up this morning besides she just kind of realized her life was a wreck without the Lord. And so, um, that, listen, church is done. We're, we're done. We, 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 we've had a day. That's a good thing. But I do, hope, I do hope today, as we have the chance to talk, that there's some encouragement for us too. Because um, sometimes in church life, we, we confuse what worship is about. And we try to make worship solely about unbelievers, when the truth is that 99.9% of the people in the room are believers. And so worship is for uh, discipleship. We, we want what we talk about, about the gospel, to sound compelling to unbelievers who are among us. And so this morning we're going to do exactly that. If you've been journeying with us for a while in the Gospel of Matthew, you know that last week we had the chance to look at one of the most well-beloved stories in the Scripture. It's, it's the only miracle story that's told in all four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. And as we looked at that story, we saw what faith in Jesus means in the face of need. Who's going to feed all these people? What's going to happen? Where is provision going to come from? <clears throat> Today, the story that we look at follows right on the heels of that story, and it's a little more intimate picture of Jesus because it's Jesus with his disciples, and it's Jesus showing his care and providing for them, not in the face of need, but in the face of fear. We're going to talk about a frightful fishing tour that they went on and Peter walking on water. And as we look at that, we will learn some amazing things about our Lord. So we'll be in Matthew 14, uh, verses 22 through 36. If you don't have your own copy of the scriptures, uh, page 729 in your pew Bible should get you really close there. There's a little listening outline there. If you're, one of the, if you're um, OCD like myself and you like to fill in the blanks, we're going to keep you entertained here this morning. There's a bunch of blanks. As a matter of fact, my uh, second-born daughter looked at it and she goes, Wow, today's going to be a long one, huh? <laughs> it was short actually. So uh, we're going to have a good time because it's, this is God's word, and there are things in here that are important for our instruction. So let's look at how the storyline picks up, and it picks up with an unusual word beginning in verse 22. It says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he, Jesus, dismissed the crowds. And after dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and when evening came, he was there alone. Now that word immediately will occur several times in our passage. Immediately, 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 there's a sense of urgency. Now this immediately does a couple things for us. It clues us into this is all one big long story in chapter 14. So it's following upon the feeding of the 5,000. And the idea is that this story, though it stands alone, is kind of part of a bigger story. So like a chapter book. It, there's more to it. And so when he says immediately, it shows its connection to the previous section. Jesus is going to do some different things here, and it's a standalone story. So the meal is finished. They have fed the uh, 5,000, which is inappropriately named. They didn't just feed 5,000. That was 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. And they get done, and Jesus says, uh, disciples, get in the boat. This is not please. It says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. The word for made is to force or to compel or to urge. Jesus has got some kind of deadline. There is a schedule he is trying to keep and the disciples need to get in the boat and they need to get in the boat now and go. Jesus isn't going to go. 
with him. He's going to stay behind. He has um, got work to do. Now, for the disciples, listen, I don't know if you have ever cooked for 15,000 people. There's just a little bit of dishes you've got to do when you get done. So the disciples have been working. They have fed the 5,000 men, women, and children. And, and, and now food coma has kicked in. Do you know what food coma is? After Thanksgiving, when, you are, you know, you, when you've unloosened your belt buckle and your belly is distended, it's that coma where you don't want to do anything except watch you know, Dallas Cowboys football for the next three hours. You know, you're just kind of, oh, I can't eat another bite. So the disciples, they're kicked back in their lazy disciple recliner, and they've got food coma. They don't want to do anything. And Jesus says, um, yeah, you're done with the dishes. Now get in the boat and row. Go. What? What's going on? There's no, there's no break. Jesus is making them work. And you got to think the disciples are like, he's Jesus. We can't tell him no. Let's get in the, get in the stinking boat. All right, okay, get in the boat. So they go and they get in the boat. And here's the thing that's cool. Jesus, last week, for the feeding of 5,000, had come across the lake for the purpose of getting some rest. Okay, do you remember that? And as soon as he landed on the shore, here's 5,000 men with their women and children waiting for Jesus. They beat him around the lake. So no rest for Jesus. Jesus is trying to get away, and he says he has compassion, and he heals, and he teaches, and he does all this amazing stuff. So finally, Jesus gets some alone time. Is that bad for Jesus to get some alone time? I mean, he got away from the crowds, and guess who else he got away from? Those pesky disciples. He'd been living with them, you know? Give me some time alone. Here's the thing that I think is cool. Jesus kind of endorses that some downtime is okay. How many of you think that's cool that God tells you that that's okay? That's cool, okay? Anybody need a little Calgon, take me away moment, you know? Oh, let me get away. Anybody, you know, just the daily pressures and responsibilities of life? Anybody feel a little busy? Like, like one day would just be nice to like not have anything to worry about. Jesus is here reinforcing something that we see taught in the Old Testament, and that is that rest is a good idea. Actually, God designed for that to be built into the very fabric of our life. Now, as Christians, we are not strict Sabbatarians, okay? We don't, we don't hold to the Sabbath, not Saturday. Because of Christ's resurrection, we are Lord's Day people. And we don't, we don't necessarily hold to, you know, everything shutting down. Uh, the Puritans referred to the Lord's Day as the market day of the soul. Where, and you're in the market, and you're getting to buy things that you need, and you're interacting with people, and that Sunday is the day that you just feed your soul. It's, it's, it's uh, Thanksgiving every Sunday. And so there are some uh, interesting things here. Jesus is approving of alone time. He's saying it's good to have downtime. It's good to rest. It's good to get away. But here's the second thing. What does he do with his downtime? He goes up to a mountain to pray. Now, how many of you are thinking of like a bubble bath, you know, going to the massage parlor, you know, go get a haircut? What are you going to do with your free time? You can pray. Jesus says downtime is good, but then he shames us with how he uses his free time. He's, you know, I'm going to go pray. You know, hey, you know, I, I've got a half day off this week. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go pray. How many of you, when you think about your day off, you're thinking about something spiritual? For me, I'm thinking of my honeydew list because it never goes away. It does not matter how much I do on my honeydew list, there will always be something new. It's like, it's like the feeding of the 5,000. There's just more. There's more, 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 more. I don't know how she does it, you know, but she keeps it coming, you know? And so that's a good thing. I, I'm not the only one that's in that boat. I'm sure 
fellas, you all have honeydew lists. It's just life is busy. Jesus is saying, you know what? The busier it is, perhaps the more that you need to pray. And so he prays. And he demonstrates care for his disciples by praying for them. How do we know that he's praying for them? Well, there are scriptures all throughout the Bible that talk about Jesus' interceding ministry for disciples. Romans 8.34 says this, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25 says, Jesus, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, for us. Jesus' big work of redemption is done, but his ministry of intercession, of prayer, is continual. He prays for his disciples. And we see that here in this passage. We ask, what in the world is Jesus praying for? We do know that Jesus prayed for himself in the garden. Father, if it be thy will, you know, allow this kept to pass me, but if it's your will, I'll do it. We know that from these passages that Jesus continually intercedes for current disciples. See, Jesus has some kind of urgency to make the disciples get in the boat. Okay? He knows what's about to happen. He knows what he's setting up for the disciples. So I think he's praying for them. Hey, God, uh, you know, my boys, they're, they're about to go through it right now. So help them. You know, help them to respond rightly. Help them not to get ticked off. Help them not to get angry. Help them not to get discouraged. Help them not to grow weary. Help them to be the men you want them to be. So he's praying for his current disciples. But we also know that Jesus said, you know, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers. John chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus' high priestly prays this. And you know, I'm not just praying for these guys alone, but I'm praying for those who will believe as a result of what they say. Jesus doesn't just pray for current disciples. He prays for um, mission success, which is what? Future disciples. Jesus is praying for current disciples right now. What are you going through that Jesus needs to pray for you about? And it's not your ingrown toenail. It's your character. It's living out what you say you believe. And then he's praying that you will live out what you say you believe in such a way that there will be future people who will trust in the name of Christ because of your testimony. He prays for future mission. Jesus is about to go across the lake, and when he goes across the lake, he will go to an area that is not Jewish which means Gentile or pagan. And so Jesus is about to go into, um, I guess everywhere for him was in one sense enemy territory, but he was really getting ready to go into very different territory than places that had the law and they had synagogues. He was going to a place where there was no groundwork laid. And so Jesus is praying and demonstrating his care as he prays for them. But as we get to verse 24, we move from a praying Jesus to an acting Jesus, a saving Jesus. So look at verses 24 through 32 and listen to how the story continues. So Jesus is up on the mountain alone praying. Verse 24, But the boat was already over a mile from land, battered by the waves, because the wind was against them. And around three in the morning, he came toward them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Bunch of sissies. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them. Have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, 
Command me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshipped him and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, there's a lot of interesting things that I think we see here about Jesus. And the first is related to this, this first point, that Jesus sovereignly orchestrates trials for his disciples. What was the urgency to get him into the boat? It wasn't that they were going to make record time to the other side, because if that was Jesus' plan, then it's a miserable failure. Jesus is sending them into the storm. And so we see Jesus' sovereignty in his sovereign sending them alone. He puts them in the boat, and what's he do? He goes off on a private prayer retreat. They get in the boat. Jesus isn't in the boat. He, He purposely sends them alone. And what does he do? He sends the boat into the storm. Now, Jesus, son of God, he knows everything. Was he just off on his meteorological prediction? Actually, I think that's a qualification to be a meteorologist, is to be off in your meteorological prediction. Jesus could do better than the meteorologist. Did he just blow it? Man, sorry about that, guys. No, he knew what was happening. And he sent them alone. And I think an important thing for us to recognize this is the disciples were on the lake at his command. They weren't spared adversity. They weren't spared adversity. A danger, I think, with American Christianity is that we've become very soft. As a matter of fact, if you walk into a Christian bookstore, if you can actually find a Christian book in a Christian bookstore, God bless you. You can find all kinds of Jesus junk, but you might not actually find anything that passes for Christian literature. Something serious, you know, that's not fiction, um, that actually talks about the Bible. And so you go into Christian bookstores and you see these kind of crocheted things that you want to hang in your bathroom that make it sound like if you trust Jesus, you know what, man, it's all going to be swell. You know what? Christians don't get cancer and they don't get hit by drunk drivers and they they don't have unfaithful spouses and they don't have children. No. The disciples are doing exactly what Jesus has asked them to do and they're now, because of their obedience, in the midst of a storm. So listen, if you... If your version of Christianity is bartering with God, hey, I'll give you my life if you give me comfort. I'm sorry, that's not the gospel. God promises to be with you in the storm, not to give you a get-out-of-jail-free card. And my concern is we, we have created an entire generation of Christians that believe God is more interested in us than we are selfishly interested in ourselves. And that he's just trying to make our life really sweet and a bed of roses. Listen, there's nothing about being a Christian that makes adversity any less, but there's everything about being a Christian that makes adversity passable because you have him and his power and his presence and his people and his promises and his spirit and his word to get you through whatever it is that you're going through. So notice that Jesus was sovereign. He sent them alone. And because of their obedience, they find themselves in a mess. You're going to follow... If, if something happened to you today that I said, you know what, if you're serious about following Jesus, 110% on board, and something bad's going to happen to you this afternoon, I promise. Do you still follow? My fear is that many wouldn't. We also see Jesus' sovereignty 
in his sovereign arriving in their need. It seems that Jesus dismissed them right after dinner was over, okay? So um, uh, what's dinner time? Six o'clock? Let's assume it's six or seven o'clock. And then we don't know literally what time they came. Uh, Holman Christian Standards says about three o'clock in the morning. It's the fourth watch, which is somewhere from three to six. So if Jesus dismissed them after dinner, six or seven, and it's three or four in the morning, and they're only how far from land? Did you hear? About a mile? They're not making real good time, are they? For nine hours, these fishermen have been battling a storm. They've had winds that are adverse to them, and they're just, this is terrible. There's no indication that this is a killer storm. It's not a tsunami, but it's not a It's not a cakewalk. This is not a walk in the park. They are not out water skiing behind their pontoon boat. This is is, um, perhaps not a killer storm, but it's desperate. I mean, when you're in a storm in a boat like this, everybody is working, holding on, bailing water, doing something. This is not, you know, reading Reader's Digest, getting getting some sun, you know, while everybody else is doing the work. They're weary. They're tired. And then here comes, here comes Jesus. I wonder if he whistled, you know. They're over there bailing water. And it just says Jesus came walking on the water. And for the life of me, I just go, I can't help. What would that have looked like? Like, you know, the disciples are doing this, you know, on the boat. Hey, hey, did you, I saw something. Man, Peter, you're crazy, you know. And then they down and then up. No, 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 there's something out there. You know, was it one of these things that they couldn't really see it? I mean, you, you think about that? I mean, they're in a storm, little boat, waves going. Like, they think they see something, but this seesaw action, you know, what's going on? And then Jesus actually walking on the water. Like, did his feet touch the water? Or like, did, was he like wet up to his knees because of the waves? Or did he like, was it like three feet above the waves, you know, at their highest, lowest point? Yeah. What's the physics behind all this happening? It's a miracle, but listen, to still kind of think through how those happen, I think is kind of an amazing thing to think about. Jesus is doing something that is just not, not natural. And so I think it's fascinating that Jesus easily conquers that which his disciples have been battling ferociously. He just comes walking. They're working. He's walking. Now, after nine hours of struggle, even though they're fishermen, Caleb asked me, he goes, wouldn't they have known how to do the boat better if they were fishermen? I'm like, no, I think they knew how to do the boat just fine. The storm was bad. After nine hours of struggle, I could see them going, uh, listen, Jesus, you could have prayed in the boat. You know, you could have cut your prayer meeting a little bit shorter. You know, nine hours were exhausted. Why in the world didn't you show up earlier? And isn't it true that when you're facing adversity, that Jesus is always the latest person to show up on time? Some of you need to think about that for a second. Jesus is always the latest person to show up on time. Never early, never late. You're going through difficulty, your friend shows up, you're grateful for that. But it's not all right till Jesus gets there. And he will always be the latest one to show up just in time. What is happening is unnatural. Jesus comes walking to them on the water. We can understand the fearful reaction of the disciples. But, all right, the guy just fed 15,000 people. Walking on water really shouldn't be a surprise. 
What do they say when they see him? El Fantasma. It's a ghost. It's a ghost. Did he glow? You know, what, what was it? I, I don't know. Well, at least he's a friendly ghost, you know, whatever it is that's going on. Now, uh, amazingly, as terrified as they were, here's a cool thing that happens. Jesus speaks, and his words both encourage and empower his disciples. And that's the thing that's true for us. In a room this size, the, the people have walked with Christ long enough that for the majority of you, there is no Bible verse that I can tell you that you haven't heard before. Okay? You're familiar with it. But you know what? When you're going through adversity, God will almost kind of spontaneously bring a scripture passage to mind that you haven't thought about for years. And you go, yep, you know what? That's the one that I needed. That's the promise that I needed to help me through this. It's just a wonderful thing that Jesus' word encourages and empowers us. How do we know that? Because there's no more whining. There's no more fear. There's no more any of that. Now that Jesus is here, it's like everything is okay. There's still a storm. Everything's all right. And it's Jesus' words, have courage, don't fear, it is me. Jesus' words actually call out this crazy request of Peter's. He's like, oh, if it's you, call me, come, call me to come to you, and I'll come, I'll come walking to you. That is not a statement of doubt. He's not like, all right, ghost man, <laughs> call me out. Listen, if I, was a, if I was a ghost man and someone was putting me to the test, I'd be like, yeah, man, come on, step on out you know, go for it. This is not like he's putting a, a ghost or an evil spirit to the test, because the evil spirit would be like, heck yeah, come on, Pete, you know, jump in. It's a statement of trust. It's a statement of faith, and it's a crazy statement about obedience, because then Jesus says, all right, come on. And what's Peter do? He gets out of the boat. Now, I don't know if they had personal flotation devices back then, but uh, I don't think so. Did he tie a rope around his leg? It just says he got out, and he jumped out, and he was encouraged and empowered, and he goes. And the Bible says he walked, he walked on the water. It doesn't say that like he took one step and sank like a rock. It says he walked. So again, kind of my Jesus walking on the water, seesaw waves. What, how far did Peter get? You think he got 10 feet? Did he get, did he, did he get away from the boat? I think he got away from the boat because it's not like he could just jump back and hold on to the boat. He got out there. He got out there. His faith was strong enough to get him out there to get him in big trouble. Then once he got away from the boat, he starts looking at the waves. It falls apart. We get these glimpses of these unearthly things that can happen when you trust in Christ. But unfortunately, even for Peter, his great enthusiasm, his bold spirit, his response to Christ gets choked by the waves of the world, and his experiment on walking on water quickly turns into a swimming lesson. Although I don't get the sense that he sank like a rock. It says he began to sink. Oh, verse 30. When he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink. How do you begin to sink? You sink. You don't begin to sink. You know, you almost get the picture like quicksand. That, you know, Peter's faith is getting weaker and like he's sinking down. He's like, uh, Jesus, help me. There's, this, there's something that happens, and you see this immediate response on Jesus' part. The point here is that the disciples' faith proves to be weak. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells the parable of the soils, and he says there's different soils. There's the, there's the path, there's the rocky soil, there's the thorny soil, there's the good soil. 
I, I think the purpose that Matthew has in constructing his gospel the way that he has is to say the disciples, listen, they have forsaken all and followed Jesus, but they still don't get it. They're the thorny ground. Here's Peter goes, yeah, Lord, I'll follow you. Call me. I'll get out of the boat. And he gets out of the boat, and then what happens? <laughs> gets choked. Lord, save me. Well, I wouldn't have needed to save you if you just would have had the faith that got you out of the boat to keep you out of the boat. But Peter messes up. They never quite get it. In the feeding of the 5,000, <clears> they go, um, hey, Jesus, in case you didn't know, we've got our watches on. It's um, 5 o'clock. It's almost dinner time. You need to send everybody away. And he says, now, why don't you feed them? And they're talking to the one who is the bread of life, the Lord of creation, the one who made everything. And uh, they go, uh, all we got is a couple loaves and some fish. We can't do it. The fish were insufficient. And they're talking to the Lord of creation, and they're saying, we can't do it. They just don't get it. And even here, Peter, while he starts off with great enthusiasm, ends up thinking that the lake's waves are stronger than the Lord's words. After all, didn't Jesus say, come? Come. Is he going to call you to do something that he's not going to empower you to do? I see this all the time. And people go, man, I can't do that. No, no, no. I, you know, I, I don't want to get real serious about Jesus because then he's going like, to send me to Africa. No, he's not. He might just send you to your workplace and to your family and to your neighborhood. And doggone it, you should care about these people already. Jesus isn't going to necessarily transport you to a different place. He just wants you to be his. Jesus said, come. Peter was to obey. But he looked at the waves of the lake and he thought that they were stronger than the command of the Lord. So despite their doubt, Jesus proves to be a very patient teacher. Because what's he do? The minute Peter cries out, there's that word again. Immediately, Jesus stretches out his hand and he rescues Peter. And that's not all he does. Pulls Peter up. He goes, Pete, what's going on? Why did you doubt? Jesus saves before he scolds. But don't make any, don't make any mistake. Jesus does both. He doesn't just save and go, hey, better luck next time. You know, hey, keep working on that. Do 50 faith push-ups and then try it again next week. You know, he says, Pete, Pete, you came so close to getting it right. Why are you a person of such little faith? Jesus is the perfect embodiment of both grace and law. And we need that. You know, because we'll, we'll turn grace into license to do whatever we want. And Jesus says, ah, no, 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 don't use my grace to sin. There's still law. There's grace. Jesus embodies them both. But more than just rescuing Peter, Jesus brings a very gracious gift to all of the disciples. As he enters the boat, you know what happens? It says the wind dissipated. It evaporated. And when the wind evaporates, guess what happens? The waves go away. Jesus' presence brings immediate peace. That's the same for us when we know that we've got, when we know that we've got Jesus, there's peace in our life. So the trial is over. Jesus has demonstrated himself to his disciples, walking on the water, Peter, rescuing him, calming the storm. Did they get it? Not quite. You remember they thought he was a ghost, not the Lord. But now that he's in the boat, now they worship him. 
through all their fits and starts, through all their hard-headedness and their fickleness, they end up confessing Christ. They say, it says they worship Him and they say, truly, you are the Son of God. First time this phrase is on the disciples' lips in the entire book of Matthew. It's like now they finally get it. Now they finally worship. But as incredible as this incident is, the walking on water, the stilling of the storm, it's not the climax, it's not the point. And a lot of times I think when people preach this passage, it's kind of like preaching the David and Goliath story. We try to make it all about us. What are the giants in your life that you need to slay? What are the storms in your life that you need? And, you know, there was a song, I think, in the... Well, I don't know when it was. Um, I grew up with it. You're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. That's the way most Christians practice biblical interpretation. Make it all about themselves. And the, the thing is, this passage really is not about Peter at all. It's about Jesus and that he is worthy of worship. He, he's the one that can feed the crowds. He's the one that can walk on the water. This is not about Peter at all. If it is about Peter, it's like, Peter, why is your faith so small? Am I not worthy of more? And so as we get to verses 34 through 36, I think the point is really driven home in this concluding story. It says, once they crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they alerted the whole vicinity and brought to him all who were sick. They were begging him that they might only touch the tassel on his robe. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. It's been a long night of battling the storm. They finally reached the other side. And when they do, as they step ashore, Jesus finally receives unqualified worship. Listen, he comes to the disciples And the disciples suffer from a case of mistaken identity. But Jesus lands among among a bunch of pagans. No scripture, no synagogue, no teaching, no prophets, no history. And they recognize him immediately. Since the parable of the soils has been told in Matthew 13, this kind of worship has not happened. Jesus tells the parable of the soils and then he goes and he visits his own hometown and it says that they're offended by him. And Jesus says, A prophet is without honor in his own hometown. Herod is the king of the Jews. And and, and as John the Baptist preaches to him about righteousness and morality, Herod cuts John the Baptist's head off. Guys, this is a picture of hard soil. This is the path. The seed is thrown along the path. Herod heard. Jesus' townspeople heard. They just didn't give a rip. They don't want to do anything about it. So then we go to the feeding of the 5,000. Hey, man, everybody's really fired up to, to follow Jesus when he gives them free food. But like the rocky soil, it springs up, but their faith is only temporary. They're going to follow Jesus as long as he fills their belly. But you know what? As soon as the magic show's done, we're going back to our own ways. They're fickle. So then we go to the disciples. Well, certainly these disciples, these 12, they got to be better than the path. They got to be better than the rocky soil. And what do we see? Pete steps out of the boat, man. Way to go, Pete. Good job. And then he gets choked by the cares of the world. He looks at the world and he goes, wow, the world's stronger than the Lord is. I can't do it. And then finally, at the very end of chapter 14, Jesus goes to a foreign land, to a pagan people that have no scripture. They have no preparation. They haven't been prepared by the the law and the prophets and the kings and, and the judges and all these rulers. And he goes to this pagan people and they recognize him immediately. The disciples have been with him all this time and they don't recognize him. They think he's a ghost. But he goes to these pagans. 
And it says they immediately knew who he was. And one of the results of them immediately knowing is they told everybody in town, well, not even that town, everyone in the vicinity, hey, you know who's here? Jesus, son of God. He can heal. He can do great things. And it says that Jesus did great miracles there. The ironic thing is that the pagans of Gennesaret proved to be the good soil when all the people who had the privileges of religion ended up being people that choked out, sprouted up temporarily, or didn't even listen to the word. Can you see the point of application? Church is a dangerous place to be, friends. If you come with no intention to obey, all you have done is bad. You have accumulated judgment to yourself. When the birds come and they pull the word away, instead of letting it seep down into your heart and bear fruit, it's bad. And the measure of this is, the measure of this is, are you really, truly here to worship Christ? Or are you simply here to check it off for your list this week? Jesus is worthy of worship. Peter knew that. He just got distracted. Jesus' hometown didn't care. Herod didn't care. The 5,000, they're in it for themselves. But the pagan people, the people that we'd write off, they know how much they need Jesus. And they received him with gladness. So, friends, this morning, how are you worshiping? What kind of soil are you? Because Jesus is worthy of our worship. Not just us standing up and sitting down and singing and passing plates, but for us to live. Like his resurrection really makes a difference in our life. That it changes the desires and the destiny of how we're going to live. That it's not just the destination, but it's the pathway that we're going to walk every day of our life. And so friends, this morning, I'm here to tell you that you have the privilege and the responsibility of worshiping the risen Christ. If your heart is good soil. Pray with me, please. God, we need to hear this word. There are so many things um, in our life, around our life, even our own life that call for our worship, that call for us to make much of it to the exclusion of other things. And God, we are idol worshipers if we worship anything besides you. You alone are worthy of our worship. You alone are worthy of our commitment. You alone uh, have the right to tell us how to live and how to, how to stay right with you, how to be beneficial in our existence, how not to be a waste of flesh and bone. God, we are so distracted. We are choked out like Peter. That's why we identify with him. We, we, we believe better than we live. And God, that's a sin. We ask for you to convict us where our worship is impure, where our worship is imperfect. God, we ask that you reveal yourself to us in such a way that we fall on our knees before you and confess our unworthiness and that only through Christ do we have the right to have access to God. We thank you for your sacrifice for us. God, we pray that that's not merely a history lesson, but a living reality that pushes us to worship you more. God, today, if there is one that needs to recommit their life, that needs to uh, express their commitment by joining this local congregation, God, we've got people among us that need to be baptized. That's the first step of obedience. 
I pray that as we have the chance to sing this song and as your word does its work through your spirit among your people, that you'll push us in the right direction. That just as you urged, compelled, forced the disciples to get into the boat, that you will do the same with your people here. That you will urge, force, compel them to obey. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.